Since moving to Milwaukee in 1953, the Braves have captured one world championship, two National League pennants, and millions of fans. Let's analyze the components that have elevated the Braves to their lofty station. Eddie Matthews and Henry Aaron comprise baseball's best one-two power punch. Last year, Matthews set a National League record with 30 or more homers in eight consecutive seasons, while Aaron captured the senior circuit's RBI crown, driving across 126 runs. Aaron, a product of the Blaves farm system, is rated by many experts as the greatest wrist hitter in baseball. At 26 years of age, Henry has collected two National League batting titles and has become a fixture on postseason all-star teams. Matthews, too, came up through the Braves organization. In his nine-year career, Muscleman Matthews has averaged 37 home runs per season, and twice, Eddie has led the league in this department. Don Newcomb has the misfortune of meeting Milwaukee might head-on. Wes Covington drills a shot that sends Gus Bell scurrying while Covington pulls up with a double. Jolting Joe Adcock always presents a fearsome figure as he digs in at the plate. Big Nuke hurls his high hard one, and Adcock connects as only Adcock can. Take out the tape measure, boys. This ball is just about in orbit. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the uh, the showgram. We appreciate your finding us uh, in the world of podcast land. Uh, we know it's uh, difficult. Uh, you got so many different choices out there, and uh, we are, are hugely appreciative that uh, you've given us some of your uh, precious listening time uh, this week. And we hope you'll enjoy this week's episode here on Good Seats Still Available. Yes, our curious little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Uh, we're going to go back to baseball, and we're going to go back to uh, a story that uh, will have uh, probably a lot more, uh, many more wrinkles to kind of uh, investigate. But uh, it is one that uh, we haven't uh, touched on, geez, in almost a year and a half. And that's the story of the Braves of baseball uh, during their uh, somewhat quixotic uh, stop over the span of, she's not even 20 years in Milwaukee. We uh, had a, a great conversation back in episode 32 uh, with uh, writer and documentarian Bill Pavletic. Uh, which we urge you, of course, to listen to either before or after uh, this here episode with our guest this week, Patrick Steele. Uh, he, the author of Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee, a book that came out, uh, geez, after our conversation with Bill. Uh, it happened, uh, the uh, book came out in uh, what, the the spring of uh, 2018, so about a year old now, this book. And uh, it is a great excuse for us to Go back and uh, kind of revisit some of the things that maybe we uh, didn't get to go deeper on with uh, Bill in our previous episode. And there's a whole lot of intrigue, right? Frankly, the story of how uh, Milwaukee became the destination uh, for the uh, arguably, uh, maybe not so arguably, number two baseball team in Boston, uh, the Braves, and and understanding the Milwaukee connection, uh, the fact that the, uh, the Brewers, uh, the minor league version of such, was uh, the uh, minor league uh, AAA affiliate. Uh, of the Boston Braves certainly had something to do with it, of course. But, uh, you know, as we get into our conversation with Patrick Steele, you know, a whole bunch of uh, I- intrigue. I mean, there were people like Bill Veck involved that uh, might have gotten uh, this franchise into 
uh, Milwaukee, having had uh, run that minor league version of what was then known as the Brewers and being rebuffed uh, and some of the sort of diaspora that sort of came out of all of that. The reason why Milwaukee, you know, was chosen as uh, places uh, much seemingly sexier like San Francisco and Los Angeles beckoned, obviously later in the decade as the uh, Dodgers and the Giants uh, moved uh, 3,000 miles westward from uh, the New York metropolitan area. Arguably, and maybe not so arguably, the move of the Braves from Boston to Milwaukee opened the door to the possibility of not only West Coast expansion, but just expansion across uh, this great land of ours beyond the sort of northeast and central kind of uh, history of uh, of Major League Baseball up until that point. Uh, it's just so many other sort of subtexts to all this. Uh, and we also get into, of course, not only you know, the demise of the team and, and why Atlanta came calling with a siren song. And, you know, we get into a little bit of, of stadium politics, right, both in Milwaukee, uh, as well as uh, uh, the beginnings of what became kind of a land rush or a, uh, you know, an incentive uh, bazaar of cities trying to uh, lure teams to their locales by, uh, you know, committing to uh, deficit spending, you know, on things like facilities and stadiums and such. And, and Atlanta's an interesting story on that. But look, we also uh, don't want to sort of get into just the coming and going of this uh, this team. But we also want to talk about some of the uh, the highlights of the, the team. They did win a world championship, for God's sakes, and a couple of National League pennants while they were at it. And, uh, you know, they took Milwaukee by storm for a whole bunch of years, I would argue, until maybe until 1960 or so, when it kind of, the denouement kind of uh, began and, and then ultimately into, uh, into bolting for Atlanta. But, uh, you know, we get into some of it. I mean, Eddie Matthews and Hank Aaron and Joe Adcock, as you heard in that little clip from uh, reviewing the 1959 season, uh, Warren Spahn and Lou Burdett, Bob Buell. I mean, you know, there's a whole host of, uh, of characters and, you know, Hall of Fame uh, career folks that uh, burnished and or cemented their, their careers uh, and their legacies uh, while playing in front of a very uh, passionately uh, rabid fan base in Milwaukee when they were known as the Milwaukee Braves. That's uh, the period of time that we're going to be focused on. Uh, 1953 to 1965 in uh, beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with our guest this week, Patrick Steele, home of the Braves, the battle for baseball in Milwaukee, he, the author of such. And uh, we encourage you to stay tuned for that in uh, just mere moments. Before we get there, we, of course, though, want to remind you uh, that our friends at The Great Courses Plus have the uh, free month offer for you for a limited time uh, to uh, uh, download their app and enjoy unedited the smorgasbord of uh, of course offerings that they offer to you uh, at thegreatcoursesplus.com. What is it? It's unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. Uh, USA Today says, are you tired of binge watching? Well, how about trying some binge learning? Uh, the Wall Street Journal calls uh, the Great Courses Plus a serious force in American education. And PC Magazine, of course, calls the Great Courses Plus all you can stream access to an excellent library of college level lectures. Well, those are probably some of the best descriptions that I could find uh, about the Great Courses Plus dot com. But look, uh, don't uh, believe me. Why don't you believe the latest course offering that I think is obviously very appealing to the uh, folks who might be listening to this here episode uh, this week? And that is their uh, collaboration uh, with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum on a brand new course that I'm about now 17, I think 17 and change lectures into now. It's called Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. You may have heard me talk about this in a couple of other episodes, uh, but it is narrated and taught uh, by Professor Bruce Markison, 
the manager of digital and outreach learning at the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. And uh, it's wonderful stuff. And it talks about a whole host of things around the earliest days and years of baseball's history. And, and by the way, parallels very much uh, that of uh, the rise uh, and the maturation of the American experience, shall we say. There are courses uh, devoted, devoted to how the fans uh, have evolved over years and how baseball and culture in the United States have grown hand in hand. Uh, there's a, a, a course devoted to uh, the players, the owners, and the reserve clause, a topic that we've uh, skirted around and on and into on a number of different episodes, not just in baseball, but other sports, of course. Uh, the impact of war on baseball. We've talked about that. Numerous wars intersecting uh, with the history of baseball and what that means. How baseballs themselves, the actual physical construct of the of the ball used over the course of the hundreds now of years of baseball history. All of those. And there's just, a, you know, almost two dozen more episodes of this great series, uh, Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. That is all yours for free for an entire month. And not just, by the way, this course, but also any of the courses uh, that uh, are available in this all-you-can-eat goodness. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com. And of course, we want you to enjoy that free month on us. Give it a try. If you don't like it, cancel it, for God's sakes. But I, I doubt you're going to cancel it that quickly. And for sure, you want to take advantage of that free month to uh, glean and listen to and enjoy and view uh, all the great stuff about this baseball series. It's an online offering. It's also available in app form. Uh, you can stream it to any device. Uh, and the app is awesome because you can also download it in advance, meaning you don't need a broadband connection. So if you're going to be uh, in a spotty area or driving in the back of the backseat of someone's car, for God's sakes, whatever, or if uh, you're going to be on your bike ride or whatever, and you just want to hear it in audio only form, you can do all that too. But the place to go, it's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Don't forget that slash good seats. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. And that is the place for a limited time where you will get a free month of the Great Courses Plus service. And uh, again, we highly encourage you to check out Play Ball, the rise of baseball as America's pastime. And hopefully you'll also get some interesting uh, uh, exposure to some of their other great stuff at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. And we thank, of course, The Great Courses Plus for their sponsorship of their show. And uh, hopefully this is a kismet for the conversation that we're going to have today around baseball, in particular, uh, the Braves in Milwaukee, that magical period of time. And we're going to get into it uh, with our guest and our conversation with Patrick Steele coming right now. Give our audience a sense of uh, your sort of connection to this story. Was it uh, childhood? Was it uh, something in the uh, in the academic realm or in the library or some other sort of white hot comet that bumped into your head and said, hey, this brave story is worth going really deep into? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, the story of the Braves, you know, and my connection to it, um, you know, is probably almost as long and deep as the history of baseball in Milwaukee is. Um, Milwaukee's always been a great baseball town. I mean, they had a long heritage of uh, high-end uh, minor league baseball for years. Uh, we had a Negro League team, also the Milwaukee Bears. This year is the 75th anniversary of the All-American Girls uh, team, the Milwaukee Chicks winning the pennant. So, you know, there's this long-standing history of baseball in Milwaukee, but there hadn't been Major League Baseball. And what really triggered my interest was years later, um, as a kid growing up in the early 1970s, um, we'd go out to County Stadium and people would be talking about the Braves and you'd have ushers out there talking about, 
you know, the glory years of, of the Braves being in Milwaukee. And uh, for my ninth birthday, um, I got a book from my aunt and uncle, and it had pictures of my favorite baseball player of all time in it, Henry Aaron. And in a couple of the pictures, he was wearing an M on his cap. And it just, again, as a kid, it didn't really register. So I went and asked my mom. And my mom kind of looked at me and she goes, well, the Braves used to be in Milwaukee. And, you know, I was floored because, again, as a kid, I, I had only known him as the Atlanta Braves. So um, and my, I found out, you know, through talking with my mom that she had been a huge Braves fan growing up. Because she remembers actually going out to see the minor league Brewers play over at Old Borchard Field. And, you know, when the Braves came, that was a really big deal for her. And she used to go out a lot. And so for her, it was just baseball was part of growing up, you know, in Milwaukee. And then, you know, as abruptly as they came, you know, they left. And so, you know, she didn't really know why. And so I just, I kind of left it at that. And then in 1988, Bob Beagie published his book and uh, Bob did the forward for mine. And he talked about the Milwaukee Braves in essence, on the field, he wrote a book called uh, The Milwaukee Braves Baseball Eulogy. And if any of your listeners can find the book, it should be available on Amazon. It's a great book. It's a great read. It really does encompass, you know, the playing aspect of, of the Braves during their years in Milwaukee. But he never really answered either the question as to why they left. So I never really knew. Um, and so as I got to know Bob over the years, I kind of told him, I said, you know, one of my things is I want to write a book that kind of explains why the team failed, because I just don't think, you know, greedy owners you know, is, is the sole reason. And there's got to be a reason why attendance dropped off. And so really, you know, sitting in the back of my head since the late 1980s, early nineties, I had thought about doing this book. So I kind of had let it sit. I talked about it for a while. And then finally I had a chance to do a presentation uh, down at the Chudno museum in Milwaukee. And I got done with it. I was talking about baseball in early Milwaukee. And finally, you know, a couple of people sitting there just asked, so when are you ever going to finish your Braves book? And it lit a fire. It just lit a fire to get the story done. Um, and from that point on, it was probably about three years of research, um, probably about another year of writing and refining. So, you know, it's been a long, long time coming to get to this point. Well, all right. As you decide to kind of get this going, and I'll, I'll get into a little bit of the process, because I'm, I'm always fascinated as to, you know, once you have the idea and the spark, how the process works. And, and frankly, some of it comes down to you know, what you do as a day job, if you have the skills or it's sort of a, you know, a completely amateur expedition. But maybe you can sort of put uh, this team a little bit into uh, into context, because, you know, this is a franchise circa, well, I guess the early 1950s, right, which was the, shall we call it the number two team in Boston for, for many, many years. Yeah, it wasn't the number two team by much. I mean, by certainly by 52, it was. You know, it was, it was a team that, that was coming off, a, you know, a pennant in 1948, um, you know, losing the World Series to Bill Vex, you know, Cleveland Indians, I think in six games. So it's a team that had some recent success. No, but the irony, though, is that uh, was we get to is that, uh, that Milwaukee back in the earliest of days, 1901, I believe it was, right, was one of the original uh, teams in the uh, then, you know, brand new uh, American League known as the Milwaukee Brewers, and, and only lasted a year. And then it was, what, almost more than 50 years later that Milwaukee was on the radar to become a, a yet another Major League Baseball city. I guess a, a great scene center to me would be, maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of a sense of why the Braves uh, in the first place and why Milwaukee, given 50-plus years of... Um, shall we say, only minor league uh, treatment for baseball? Well, um, you know, it's kind of a two-part story as to, you know, how the Braves actually ended up in Milwaukee. And the first part obviously has to do with, 
what happens with them in Boston. And the second part has to do with what happens in Milwaukee. Um, you know, within Boston, you know, it, it, as you suggested before, you know, they've been kind of the second tier team. And, you know, Boston as an overall market, when you include Boston, in the outlying areas is actually not bigger than Milwaukee and its outlying areas when you look at population. And, you know, Boston or Boston's trying to, you know, hold um, two teams uh, in support coming into the age of television and, you know, more expansive radio broadcasts. And, you know, it, it's there, you know, both teams actually did struggle. Um, Boston was not the great baseball town then, you know, that it is now, but clearly the Red Sox, you know, we're, we're the number one team, but Boston, you know, the Braves, like I said, you know, had gone to the world series in 48. So they had a history of some success. What brought them to Milwaukee was the new owners that came in and bought the Braves, the three little steam shovels, the Perini brothers, in particular Lou. Um, they had bought up a bunch of minor league franchises, and they actually bought up a very successful one in Milwaukee, uh, the Milwaukee Brewers. And uh, they bought it in 46. And so they basically had the team, and they'd actually come and played exhibition games in, in Milwaukee prior to the team coming in 53. So by having the franchise there – they had the claim to the market. Um, the problem is because you're within technically the Chicago Cubs 90 mile radius that the um, Cubs could theoretically, you know, reject any team that wanted to come, but the Braves were not going to come to play in Borchard field. The Milwaukee County leadership at the time, there were some visionaries on it and they've been trying to build a new stadium. Um, old Borchard field was an old wooden ballpark, um, dated back to the uh, late 1900s. And it was one of those parks that, uh, you know, was prone to fires, uh, wind damage, whatever. And it was just, it was a really unique looking park, but it was small. It was minor league. And so in the late forties, there was really this big drive to build a new stadium. And the, the idea was we have a successful minor league team here. It's triple a let's build it in an appropriate stadium, but behind the scenes in particular, because of Fred Miller, the president of the Miller brewing company, he really pushed aggressively to in essence, make the park major league. So when they put the framework in for County stadium publicly it was stated, well, you know, we're going to do this for the brewers. In fact, actually going into the 53 season, they'd sold season tickets and everything. Um, and behind the scenes, you've got a couple of different groups from Milwaukee going out and searching out teams that might want to relocate. One team that actually, uh, Milwaukee was in co uh, consultation with was the St. Louis Cardinals. And this was just before Audie Bush bought the team when he realized that the Miller company might actually buy the Cardinals out of St. Louis, Bush decided to invest and buy the Cardinals. So that stopped that purchase. Oh, that's interesting how the two beer barons actually were responsible yeah. for the shaping the baseball landscape. That's real. Yeah, well, it, you know, the irony of that is, too, um, Bill Veck had been the former owner of the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, in fact, he actually, when he got back from World War II, he had sold the club, used the money he made from that and bought into the Cleveland Indians. But he had been, while he was in Milwaukee, close friends with Fred Miller. And uh, when Miller was actually going to buy the St. Louis Browns, Bill Veck undercut him. And so ultimately when the Braves come, there was still a lot of bad, bad blood between uh, Miller and Veck because he had always felt that a friend of his had undercut him and stopped him from getting a franchise. Well, meanwhile, as they're pushing the stadium, as they're working behind the scenes to get a team in there, the Boston Braves um, – made a decision following the 48 season to start televising their games. And what you have to understand is it's not like today where almost every house has a television. 
you're talking the late 40s, early 50s. Televisions are mostly at bars, taverns, those types of places. There are some in homes, but they're not as common as they are now. Yet, attendance at Boston Braves games fell down over 90. That's 90, 90% between 1948 and 1952. And Lou Perini blamed that all on television. Now, he also believed that he could save the Braves in Boston. Now, he is a Boston guy through and through. Um, he's from Massachusetts, where his company is. That's where he wants to be. He doesn't really want to go anywhere. What forces his hand is Bill Vack, who had, at this point, bought the St. Louis Browns, who had been the original minor league Milwaukee Brewers you were talking about before. What Vec wants to do, based off his experience in Milwaukee as the former owner of the Brewers here, is he wants to move the Browns back to Milwaukee, and the American League would return to Milwaukee 50-plus years after the original season. The problem is Lou Perini owns the rights to Milwaukee, and he doesn't want to give them up. So Bill Vec goes public, and he makes it very clear that the one guy that's standing between Milwaukee getting baseball major league baseball and not having it at all is Lou Perini. So there's a big push to get Lou Perini to reconsider, to, you know, to get his team down to, uh, out of Boston, down to Milwaukee. The biggest point was in the last season, 1952 in Boston, without anybody knowing the team was even thinking about moving, they drew just over 280,000 for an entire season. That's catastrophic, even by those standards. So he knew he couldn't stay. He'd only sold 420 season tickets for the 1953 season. He hoped to make one more year, maybe turn it around, put some renovations in the Braves sealed because he owned the park. Maybe they could make it work. Bill Vec forces his hand. Perini decides to ask the National League for permission to move his club to Milwaukee. Um, he did get permission from Phil Wrigley to waive the territorial rights of Southern Wisconsin. And in mid-March 1953, Milwaukee got its major league team. So there are a couple of things to unpack there, which this is all really interesting. So Perini, what is the thing about Milwaukee? Did you, I'm sorry, I may have missed it. Is he a Milwaukee native or was it because of the farm club that the Braves had here with via the, uh, the Brewers? Yeah, it was the farm club. I mean, Perini, like I said, was he was a Boston guy through and through. You know, and, and again, here's a great comparison. He was a Boston guy the way Bud Selig is a Milwaukee guy. Um, you know, had, um, and people forget this when the whole debate over Miller Park, um, to be put up was, was being had the original vote to build it failed. And at that moment, Selig realized he was going to have to move his team. So in theory, had they not reconsidered the vote and actually got one uh, state Senator to switch his vote, uh, George Petak and say Miller Park's never built the Brewers would have gone to Tampa. They would have gone to Arizona. They would have gone somewhere like that. If Bud Selig is the owner of the team in Tampa, if he's the owner of the team in Phoenix, he'd be a great salesman for baseball, but his heart's in Milwaukee. That's where he wants to be. It's the same thing with Lou Perini. Lou Perini wanted the team to be in Boston. That's where he wanted it to be. It's because Bill Vec forces his hand by asking for the territory that the Braves own because they own the minor league Brewers. He would not give it up because he realized Milwaukee was a growing city and had a great transportation network in the outlying areas. The population base in the area around Milwaukee mirrored what Boston had, and you're asking it to support one team instead of two. 
And um, it, it was a very shrewd move on his part. Okay, so that's interesting. So then I, I guess I'm also looking for maybe the last sort of uh, piece of that sort of walkie mm-hmm. story, right, is versus, say, you know, what happened later in the decade, right, which was San Francisco and Los Angeles. And, and maybe this is easy to say now versus, you know, being that Milwaukee is essentially a, quote unquote, smaller market relative to some other metropolitan areas in the United States, right? But I guess the question really is, in general, why Milwaukee versus, say, I don't know, a raft of other probably mostly more Western uh, locales as baseball was maybe starting to begin to scratch the itch of this idea of expansion? Well, the easiest answer was they had a brand new ballpark. They had a major league stadium, brand new and expansive parking. And people today take parking for granted. But you're going to go to a ballpark, you're going to have a place to park your car. Um, even in places like Chicago, you're going to have places to park in the areas around Regal, but at least have transportation to get to the ballpark. Um, in Milwaukee, you don't have that. You don't have to fight, you know, to get on a train to get down to the ballpark. You drive there, you can park. And that is appealing. It's one of the main reasons why the Dodgers ultimately left Brooklyn to go to Los Angeles because they were going to get a new ballpark and they were going to get all the parking lot revenue. So when you simply look at that, where Braves Field was in Boston and the limited parking they had around it versus what Milwaukee had with a brand new, brand spanking new stadium and expansive parking. And the fact that when the the interstate system comes again, it it wasn't debated yet at this point, but a little bit later, they actually route the the interstate bypass, the east-west bypass, um, to go right past where the stadium is. It's not where it originally was supposed to go. They moved it to accommodate the stadium. So all these things really benefited Milwaukee. And Milwaukee became the blueprint for the Dodgers, for the Giants, for teams to go somewhere else. And I've told um, many people, you know, one of the biggest lessons from my book isn't if you build it, they will come. It will ultimately be if you don't build it, they will leave. And so that that's kind of where you are once the team is here. What are you going to do to keep them here? So how does the uh, the Braves departure from Boston go down? How does Perini, quote unquote, break the news to the dwindling number of fans? How does it, you know, is it done sort of under the, the cloak of darkness or how does he quote unquote, break it to the Boston marketplace, who arguably the smaller number, maybe, maybe sort of good riddance. And then, and then maybe juxtapose that with how Milwaukee responded to their arrival. Well, you know, it's funny because there was a lot of hatred on both sides towards Lou Perini. Remember the team's down in Florida in spring training. So, um, you know, people in Boston are getting ready for, for the season coming up and, you know, Perini had all intentions to bring the team back. The problem he ran into was, uh, Bill Veck. Now, some have speculated that perhaps he had been anticipating this a little bit earlier because um, the previous year he hired Charlie Grimm, the former minor league Brewers manager who was very popular in Milwaukee, to become the manager of the Braves. And uh, Grimm always believed till the day he died that that was done particularly because the expectation was the team was going to move to Milwaukee. Now, how it broke in Boston was it started to leak out of the newspapers at the owners meetings that Lou Perini was considering this. The problem was they didn't have enough time to really do anything because it was really sprung on them at the last minute. And in my book, I talk about the dichotomy between Boston and, you know, in 52 versus Milwaukee in 64 and 65, you know, Boston fans, the few that remained had a matter of days from the time it was first announced that this was being considered till the actual owners voted to allow the team to move. So there was no chance 
to mobilize civic pride, to do anything else, to try and keep the team there. And when you look ahead to 64, 65, Milwaukee fans had, you know, two years of rumors and a full year of a a lame duck season to know the team was going to be leaving. They didn't know that in Boston. And there was a lot of anger, you know, the governor of Massachusetts, mayor of Boston, they were all very bitter at Lou Perini. And and he's standing there kind of looking at him going, I had no other option. I had nowhere else to go. Nobody's coming out to the ballpark. Yeah. In your investigation, though, where does the consensus sort of sit in terms of how much thought he had put into into this move? Obviously, it seems hasty when you look back at it, right? In the middle of preseason, for God's sakes, right? doesn't seem like it was well thought out, but obviously or probably maybe had been thought out and it was just a matter of picking the right time to just pull the trigger and do it. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny because, um, you know, I've seen some interviews with his sons and a couple of people and, you know, some of the people that were very close to him and all the reading, um, all the research that I did in it, you know, he, he kept his decision to move the team very close to himself. He never told him, he didn't even tell his wife. Um, and in fact, actually, you know, during the time in Milwaukee, there were times where he would say, you know, two things are completely contradictory. Um, and I'll get into that kind of towards the end, but you know, it was, um, you know, what, what was in his head? I don't really know. Um, logically he had to have some idea he was going to do this. Um, I think sooner than what he did. Um, I think what he had in mind, this is my belief. I think what he had in mind was if the team did not do well in Boston in 53, then he would pave the way to move on his own in 54. The problem was Bill Vack pushed his hand in 53. And, and again, the irony is this. Had he been able to last in 53, that one more season, the team got good. The team was really good in 53. They finished second place. So, you know, does that turn around the fortunes of the Boston Braves? It could have saved them. Now, you know, does that mean in, you know, 2019 that Boston would be a two-team market? I, you know, I don't think so. But at least maybe it would have delayed yeah, that's okay. That's really interesting. So now we get into some what if scenarios. Well, I got to think too that it seemed like it could be executed relatively quickly, given, and I'm assuming uh, that the Milwaukee Brewers minor league franchise was, you know, at least in in, in alignment right, with the Braves organization, right? I don't know if it was fully owned or was it. Yeah, it, it was fully owned, and you know, it's you know the one of the kind of neat ironies of it is you know people see the. The, the Braves cap with the white M on the front. They go, oh, that's Milwaukee Braves cap. Originally, that was a you know minor league Brewers cap. So um, when when they came, all they did was swapped out their B hats for an M cap, and, and there you go. The uniform, everything else was identical. Um, the hardest part was actually uh, for the fans back here in Milwaukee because, as I'd said before, the Brewers were scheduled to go into that ballpark um, in the spring of 53. So they had done all their preseason sales. They had done all their – um, uh, ticket sales for uh, season ticket packages, et cetera. People had gone in the stadium, picked out their seats. When the Braves announced they were going to come, all that got canceled. And you had to go back through the process again, of course, now because it's a major league team, tickets were going to cost dramatically more. And so they had to shred all the original tickets they had printed. They had to shred all the tickets that were printed for the Boston season. I mean, it was just, there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes. You got had to get office furniture. You had to do all this other stuff move from Boston out to Milwaukee um, in order to get the, the stadium ready for opening day. They had to move all the groundskeepers out there. There was just a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And then interestingly enough, and again, this wasn't apparent, and uh, this is something I really kind of found in the research, was some of the demands actually that Perini had made 
he wanted all new lights. Even though it was a new ballpark, he wanted a different set of lights. He wanted other things put in. So the county agreed to put in about $2 million, and this is, again, early 1950s dollars. It was a substantial investment in stadium improvements before Perini agreed to finally move his team here. So, you know, immediately the county was working to make the stadium accommodate the Braves. And all this was done, if you will, under the sort of cloak of secrecy then? I mean, I know how you keep that kind of thing under wraps. Yeah, you know, and it was because once it was announced the team was going to come and all the stadium deals are being worked out behind the scenes, um, I don't think there was a lot of attention on what was going because whatever it took to get a team here, people were willing to do. And it's hard for people maybe outside the state of Wisconsin to really grasp this. Um, you know, in the state of Wisconsin for the last, you know, 60 years, the Green Bay Packers have been the team. It's everything. You know, uh, most of the people that live in Wisconsin, not all, but most are Packer fans. If they're not Packer fans, you know, they're at least familiar that the Packers are the big deal in the state. Well, when the Braves came, the Packers were not very successful. They were, you know, the last championship had been a decade earlier. The 1950s were kind of a low point for that franchise. They were terrible. So in comes this team from Boston. And honestly, between 1953 and probably 1959, the Milwaukee Braves were the team in Wisconsin. And the Packers were second place. And it's only after 59 when Lombardi comes that that dynamic switches and the Packers become the state team. Yeah, and it's very it's, it's very interesting having you know, lived in Chicago the last twenty or so years and in, in my life near the near the Wisconsin border. Actually, you know, the, the, it is very much a we we sort of alluded to the idea of regional team, right? But it is basically the state of Wisconsin's uh, team, the Green Bay Packers, and and by extension, I think Milwaukee and maybe the Bucks now too, you know, are sort of perceived as kind of Wisconsin's own and and truly sort of a quasi regional play, and maybe arguably a, a bit of a a vanguard, right, circa early 50s, when maybe that idea was relatively new or novel. Yeah, you know, and it, 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 part of it was because of, you know, the excitement of actually having Major League Baseball here. It was the first team that moved in 50 years. You know, prior to that, the only baseball games you could go see is if you went down to Chicago to see either the Cubs or the White Sox play, or if you went down to St. Louis to see the Browns or the Cardinals. You know, other than that, you had to go around the lake to go up to Detroit. You had to, you know, go across the state to go, or, you know, uh, Indiana, you know, get in Ohio to go to either Cleveland or Cincinnati. There's nothing that was close. Now you got baseball here. And so you had a radio network that went up into the upper peninsula of Michigan and went across Minnesota, went out into Dakotas, went in Iowa. Um, and so it was really not just a state team. It was a regional team when it came. And uh, they documented, I think it was people from, I believe it was 42 states. They found 42 different states that first year at County Stadium. So people came from all over to see the team. There were people who actually went from Boston who had been at one point Braves fans, had traveled to Milwaukee to see their team one more time. So, you know, there's just some, some really neat stories kind of behind it, but it really was the story of baseball in 53. And, of course, the attendance numbers they put up are off the chart. All right. So explain that first year uh, in terms of fan enthusiasm and how the city goes gaga for them and, and maybe a little bit of the, the on-field play. Because, yeah, I got to think that they, in some respects, there was because they're moving in the middle of preseason. Right. Again, impossible to fathom, frankly. I, I can't imagine that they had everything running smoothly yet. One point eight million fans, which is basically then a record, you know, by the end of the year. 
how do they accommodate all these people, given the things you're talking about, like tickets, the uniforms, all this stuff has to be kind of, if you will, kind of done on the fly, no? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't $8 million that first year. It was um, it was around $2 million, I think. It was like $1.8, something like that. It might have gotten over the $2 million mark. I don't recall off the top of my head. But, you know, uh, part of it was is they were selling tickets. They, could, they would only sell them one series in advance because they didn't have enough people. They actually brought up a couple experts from other teams, including the Cincinnati Reds, to come up and help them streamline their season ticket or their ticket sales. And so they would sell, people would come from all over the place. I have a story in the book about these brothers that biked up from Racine or Kenosha, you know, biked all the way up to Milwaukee to get in the parking lot of County Stadium to be in line to buy tickets for the upcoming series. So, you know, the harder part was managing things like food service, beer, all this other stuff into the ballpark at levels they hadn't anticipated. But on this front end, while everything's going good, there's a couple of problems that are already going to plague the team down the road. One was lack of television. Again, nobody understood television baseball. You know, in the early 1950s, no Braves baseball games would be televised at home other than the World Series games um, until 1963. So you couldn't even get away games. You know, it was just um, radio that you could listen to them. So that, that'll be a problem there. But the other thing is this, and you need to keep this in the back of your mind. Every team that moved after the Braves, including the Philadelphia Athletics, moved to Kansas City. Um, the St. Louis Browns go to Baltimore and become the Orioles. And there's all this movement and upheaval. Every team that moved had tremendous turnout the following year. The problem is there's a settling effect because every team that moved, with the exception of the Dodgers and the Giants, were kind of second-tier bottom feeder teams. So they didn't have a good farm club. They didn't really have a good major league team. The only reason attendance was good in the new city was because it was new. The difference was with the Braves. When they came to Milwaukee in 53, they had the seeds of a really good team. They had Warren Spahn. They had Eddie Matthews. You know, they had um, talent. They had uh, Billy Bruton, um, Joe Adcock. There's just a lot of players that were really good. Del Crandall behind the plate, who was arguably one of the best catchers of the 1950s, and a case could be made the guy should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, he's behind the dish almost that entire time. It was just an amazing group of guys they had. And that really made the case different for Milwaukee versus any other team that moved again, with the exception of the Dodgers and the Giants. Every other team that moved, again, being that second-tier team, they moved they were at, you know, not very much uh, more successful on the field than they had been in the previous city, so attendance settled. In Milwaukee, the attendance never settled till after 59. And you start to see a settling effect that had that happened earlier, it would not have seemed as dramatic as it did when it did. Um, and that's one of the problems that you have because in all this buildup and every year you set an attendance record and, you know, it just seemed like the only team that could outdraw you was the Dodgers when they went to, um, you know, Los Angeles. I mean, you were outdrawing the New York Yankees, for goodness sakes. Everything was going your way and nobody would have anticipated how quickly it was going to go away. So that dispels the uh, the cynics view that this brand new spanking uh, Milwaukee County Stadium, which uh, interestingly, had been built with at least some capacity in mind. I I find it hard to believe that the minor league brewers would have filled the stands. But there is also that new stadium effect, too, right? But you're, yeah, you're well, arguing that there's a, a quality team besides the stadium. Yeah, quality team is, is a huge part of it. And again, County Stadium was built and it ultimately expanded. I mean, if you look at the footprint towards the end and, you know, I, I, I spent as much time at County Stadium as almost anybody. I mean, I grew up, you know, went to a lot of games. Um, you know, I, I'm one of the few people 
that I liked it, but I never was nostalgic for it. I mean, let's be honest. It's not Fenway Park. It's not Wrigley Field. It's not Tiger Stadium. It was a municipal stadium. Um, you know, I often joke it looked like it was designed by Soviet engineers and built by East German, you know, construction crews. It was the, uh, the epitome of a municipal stadium. The problem was Milwaukee County thought it was the Taj Mahal, thought it was the best stadium there ever was and always would be. Um, the reality was it was a functioning stadium. Now, again, here's one of the other ironies of all this. So when the Braves come, they look at these expansive parking lots. And for the 13 seasons they played in Milwaukee, they didn't get one dime of parking lot revenue. It all went to the county. Well, that uh, very interesting. Well, but, you know, uh, at some point, though, right, I mean, the county's got to pay for infrastructure and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, in many respects, the stadium was built on the come, right? In that, you know, a minor league, how big would a minor league franchise, even even it being, you know, somewhat regional and, and, and whatnot, you know, it's still never, it's not major league status. So, you know, I got to think that the county's got to figure out a way to balance the books, so to speak. My gosh, would you think if they could have had that revenue, right? Well, oh boy. Yeah, you know, and that was the hardest part, I think, overall for this, because um, I get it. And, and I talk about this in the book. I get both sides. You know, the county doesn't want to look like they're subsidizing baseball. They had gone to the taxpayers in Milwaukee County and said, hey, we want to build a municipal stadium. Now, again, what people don't remember is it wasn't just the stadium they built. They built Milwaukee County Stadium. They built the Milwaukee Arena which hosted our first NBA team, the Milwaukee Hawks. They built the Mitchell Park Domes. They built uh, Milwaukee County Zoo. There was a lot of things that the county was doing at this time to really elevate the status of Milwaukee across the region. And County Stadium was just simply one part of it. So on the one hand, you're asking the taxpayers to foot the bill for a lot of these different projects that are going on. On the other hand, they didn't understand the economics of it. The, the county did not understand that in order for the team to be successful long term, they had to have the revenue to be able to do it. So um, the county had final say on anything sold inside the stadium from advertising anything up on the scoreboard to what was being sold at the concession stands and at what price it could be. So if the Braves said, hey, you know, we'd like to sell caps, you know, at one of the um, concession stands, Milwaukee County actually had to approve the sale of those caps. And they had to approve the price that the Braves wanted to sell it at. So there's just a lot of dynamics behind the scenes of being in a municipal stadium. But Milwaukee County looked at it as, look, it's brand new. We'll make the expansions. You know, um, they would expand eventually down both the first base and the third baseline. They would tear out the original bleacher setup, put in new bleachers, put in new bullpens out there. So by 1965, your seating capacity has almost doubled inside the ballpark. The problem is by the time they get all the seating expanded, it's at a time when baseball's in decline, not just in Milwaukee, but across the country. So now you've got this big cavernous stadium and you have very average crowds coming in to see games. All right, time to pay a couple of bills around here. Uh, We welcome uh, with open arms our friends at uh, The Great Courses Plus. How can I best describe The Great Courses Plus? How about this? Unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. Yeah, it's an amazing video streaming site uh, available in app form. You can watch it online. Uh, You can stream it to any device. And it is courses uh, from some of the best professors uh, and uh, lecturers around the country in a whole host of topics 
uh, almost like college in a box, if you will. You know, things you want to learn about history or science, food and wine, hobbies, everything that you might be interested in without the tests, if you will. Uh, there's no grading whatsoever, but uh, some amazing coursework, including uh, their first real deep dive into the realm of sports, which I think will be especially interesting to our listeners. And here it is. It's called Play Ball, the rise of baseball as America's pastime. And it's created a partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. It is uh, taught by the uh, Hall's expert there on all things uh, baseball history, Bruce Markison. And uh, there are 24 lectures, uh, maybe even a few more, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that sort of traverse the uh, early history of the sport of baseball in this country. A, a bunch of things that broached to topics that uh, we've talked about here on this little show. There's uh, a lecture devoted to the uh, early era of uh, amateur baseball clubs and another lecture devoted to how they coalesced into uh, finally forming uh, what now is uh, known as organized baseball. Uh, we, there's a lecture devoted to uh, the World Series and how that got developed. There is uh, an episode uh, devoted to uh, the early ballparks of baseball called Sacred Ground. And it's just a whole host of things. Black baseball before the Negro Leagues. Uh, you name it. Uh, about the earliest days and the uh, formative years of baseball's history. You will find it in this uh, uh, tremendous course. Again, it's called Play Ball, the Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. And again, it's created in partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. And it is yours to try and listen to and view for free. Yeah, for free. An entire month's worth of The Great Courses Plus is available to our listeners. When you go to this great here website, it's called thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. And using that URL, you will get nowhere else will you get this offer. One free month of the entire service that The Great Courses Plus offers. That's all the topics, all the different courses and lectures. You can download them. You can listen to them in audio-only format or watch them in video streaming on any device you want. But if you do nothing else, take advantage of that free month and watch every episode of Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball is America's Pastime. I guarantee you'll find it interesting. I'm about three or maybe and a half, I guess, lectures into it, and uh, I can't wait to finish them all off. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. You're going to get a free month of the entire Great Courses service, and it's only yours for a limited time. So give them a try. We appreciate your doing so, and we also appreciate your listening to the rest of our conversation right now. Let's talk about the, their arrival in, in Milwaukee, because uh, I got to think Boston fans or the small number of fans had to be kind of just peeved, right, at the fact that literally, the, it, almost storybook fashion, right, the minute they show up in Milwaukee, not only are they competitive, but they are just, it, everything seems to go right in, in, in gangbusters fashion, despite maybe some of the odds against it. Yeah, it is. And again, like I said, it was really odd because it was the only team that had that happen to them. Every other team that moved settled back into some level of mediocrity. It's why the athletics were never successful in Kansas city. Um, you know, it's, it's why the uh, Orioles were not initially successful in Baltimore. You know, you, you were just simply, you know, another team that moved, you weren't really particularly good. Um, but the, the Braves were, they had a great farm system. And again, people forget this, the minor league brewers, the AAA, the last spot you went before you got to the Boston Braves organization was Milwaukee. 
Well, they had won the Little World Series in 51 and 52. So you have a very successful farm system putting some great players into the Braves organization. And like I said, they're competitive every year. You know, 53, they finish in second place. 54 and 55, they're competitive. 56, they finish game out of first place. 57, they win the pennant. They win the World Series. Uh, 58, they win the pennant. They go to the World Series. They lose in seven games. And in 59, they force a playoff series uh, with the Dodgers. Now, again, you can argue that team collapsed. And um, it probably it did. They should have won the pennant probably going away. Um, but the Dodgers caught them at the end of the year. They had a three-game um, series, best of three. The Braves dropped the first two games, so they ended up losing to, to the Dodgers, and that was the last time they were in that upper division chance to go to the you know World Series. And the success that the fans got used to was no longer there. The team, while it never had a losing record, it's one of the most bizarre stories of the Milwaukee Braves experience. 13 seasons, never had a losing record. But between 1960 and 1965, Every year it seemed they would be competitive. They would be sniffing around being in contention for the pennant and something would happen down the stretch. The team would collapse. And so the success, the excitement of the fans when the team first got here, they're able to sustain that for a longer period of time than any other city um, that another team moved to. And uh, you do feel bad for the Boston fans. I have a couple stories in the book talking about, you know, some of the interactions between Boston and Milwaukee. And, you know, there was one sports writer out in Boston who kind of really gave a warning. And he said to Milwaukee, you know, you better be careful and you better treat him well, because what you did to us, somebody may do to you. And certainly that would happen when Atlanta would call, you know, in 63 saying, hey, we can build you a new stadium. We can give you the parking lot revenue. We give you control of concessions inside the stadium. And everything else seems to fall into place. Well, the city of Milwaukee certainly must have felt like they got what they uh, they bargained for because I mean, what, this, 1955, right? The the Major League Baseball All Star Game comes into town, and arguably one of the more exciting ones until then, maybe even after that. The two years later, they're basically the toast of the town and, frankly, the world, and in being sort of the not only in the World Series but but winning that championship. I mean, I can't think of an amazing amount of momentum to put Milwaukee truly on the map with a capital M. Oh yeah. You know, and like I said, you know, they, they had those the sharp uniforms, you know, the, the Tomahawk on there, they had fans that traveled from city to city. You had a natural rivalry immediately with Chicago. Um, you had a competitive team, you know, with the Cardinals um, in, in a good rivalry between, you know, Miller Brewing in Milwaukee and, you know, Anheuser-Busch down in St. Louis. I mean, there was a lot of things that really made, the team successful on the front end. And, you know, the problem is like anything, it doesn't stay. It doesn't last. You know, there's that narrow window of time where everything seems to go your way. Um, and for the Braves, you know, they came here, they were good. They got better as they went, you know, they get Henry Aaron coming in, you know, this kid to come in and play second base, uh, before he transitioned to the outfield. Um, you know, they had, uh, they get Luber dad. I mean, they've just, they've got, Every move it seemed they made was the right move. And then just as quickly, it was just gone. It was just gone. The success that they had had on the field was not as great. And certainly the attendance they had, again, across all of baseball uh, was down. But it seemed markedly down in Milwaukee because it had been so, as I call the book, artificially high on the front end because, again, the team moved. And I look at it this way. 
if the team moves in 53, say they're not successful, right? Say they finish fourth or fifth place, okay? You still have the great attendance, but the team is, is up and coming. 55, uh, 54, rather, maybe they finish in third place, right? Maybe the following year they finish back and forth. You, you would have had a settling effect to what the real average attendance would be. Somewhere between probably 700,000 and probably 1.2 million would be a good average for that team. But they're drawing $2 million because the team was good. So that means when you get the settling effect, it looks so much dramatically worse than it did had in any other community. And it was just simply the number settled down to where average was going to be. It feels to me that, that Milwaukee and, and by extension the state of Wisconsin, uh, almost uh, especially in the you know 55 and uh, 56 and then obviously in 57 getting to the World Series, embraced uh, being, uh, you use a term and I'm sure it was uh, more generally used as well. It's not just your term, you know, as as these sort of perceived Bush leaguers, right? So it's a relatively small market, right? It's almost like a an emblem of pride. It's like, hey, you know, we, we can play, and boy, not only can we just play, we just might even win the whole darn thing. Yeah, you know, and it's easy to be that way and have that civic pride when your team was really good, um, you know, and they knew it, you know, top to bottom. You know, it was a great lineup they could put out almost any given day, and. You know, eventually Charlie Grimm gets fired because he can't get the team the World Series. He gets replaced by Fred Haney, and Fred Haney turns the team around at 56. They come within that game. Haney, of course, you know, wins it all in 57, takes him back to the World Series in 58. Um, but he's the manager that has that disastrous, you know, 1959 season. And at that point, things start to change everywhere else. Um, you know, that's the time that professional football is really starting to come on as a televised sport. Um, and people are really starting to transition love for baseball to football. And by the early 1960s, more Americans say they like football than baseball. Well, think about this. Think of a, any other area that had professional football. Was there any place bigger than Wisconsin in the 1960s? You got Lombardi, you got the Lombardi Packers, you got the glories, you got everything else going on. And so attention in the newspapers, attention among the fans began a transition from baseball to football. And there's a very clear um, understanding of this. Um, And I talk about this also in the book. Um, There is an understanding that is easier to follow a team to generate crowds. If your team goes from sixth place to third, rather than goes from first to third. So when the Braves start to decline, in wins and the Packers start to take off it's natural fan attendance, fan attendance, fan interest, newspaper interest is going to transition from what had been the big story to what is now becoming the story. And so, you know, it's a very, I did a lot of newspaper research and it is amazing to see the difference in newspaper coverage between 53 and 55 for the Braves versus 63 and 65 for the Braves versus the Packers. I mean, in those early 50 years, there's some coverage of the Packers, particularly when they're in season, but not a lot. By the time you get in the 1960s, even when the Braves are playing, there's a ton of Packers coverage. And the new owners, when they come in at the end of 1962, they're very aware of that as well, that they are, in essence, in a second-tier spot compared to the Green Bay Packers, who, of course, also played some games at Milwaukee County Stadium. So tell me about the process then, because it's a pretty good opportunity. So you're mentioning newspaper reporting and coverage, and I think that's a really interesting insight, right, that I think only you one could get by digging into sort of the daily routine 
of coverage and, and the tonality of that. And and you can imagine, right? I mean, a lot of the first couple of years is probably wrapped up in boosterism and, you know, it's it gets wrapped up in the city and it's pride and all that kind of stuff and the team doing really well. It's it's pretty pretty easy to kind of, but you're, I mean, you're describing, I guess, both a a letdown from admittedly very quick and lofty heights married with the arrival of a strengthening football franchise, uh, already a statewide following. How do you sort of discern that? Is it columns? Is it just the way the, the teams are, are covered? Is it is it are the fans kind of leading that? Is, is civic pride generally just waning because maybe they've been spoiled? I mean, or is it just sort of a general ennui that, you know, a middling team after having been at the loftiest heights uh, and another passing interest in, a, in another team that's doing relatively well? I mean, is it just all conspiring, much like perhaps their success conspired in the very beginning? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of a combination of all those things. I mean, certainly when you look at the newspapers, you know, the amount of columns dedicated, you know, to covering the Packers goes up dramatically. And the flip side, it goes down dramatically on the Braves. I mean, it even got to the point in 64, excuse me, 63 and 64, um, local papers didn't even send a reporter to cover the World Series. So, you know, the, the, clearly the interest in baseball was, was very, very down. It was one of the criticisms the team leveled at Milwaukee um, at the media coverage was, you know, you bailed on us. You, know, you went and covered football. You did all this other stuff. You couldn't even basically, you know, send reporters down to cover spring training like you used to. Well, part of it was the dynamics of coverage was, was changing. Um, you know, and this was happening all across baseball. It wasn't just with Milwaukee, but it just seemed to be, so dramatically worse. Now, again, you can paint out a scenario. Okay, so what if Lombardi doesn't come? What if the Packers aren't successful? Are the Braves potentially still here? I, I don't know. I don't think so. But, you know, that dynamic certainly would have been different. I don't think you would have seen the dramatic flood of interest going from the Braves to the Packers as quickly as it did. But there's a lot of, you know, fan interest drives all of this. You know, what are they, they're going to buy the papers that cover the things that the fans want. What do the fans want? The fans wanted by the early 60s. They wanted Packers coverage. They weren't as interested in baseball. And it's that next generational thing. And that was probably the hardest part um, for me going through this was to kind of see this. And, it, and I've, I've told everybody, you know, that, that that's asked you know, when I read the, or when I wrote the book, rather, as I went through all the research, I kind of became sympathetic to the Braves position because I started to understand what was going on from their perspective. It wasn't just a bunch of greedy owners. There's a lot of things that seem to stack up against them. You know, um, media coverage is starting to, to shift somewhere else. And it's not that it was attacking them. It just simply was going somewhere else. Um, they were far more critical of the Braves organization because they were making trades. They weren't getting much in return. Um, they hired managers that were not very popular in Milwaukee or, frankly, very successful. And, of course, when you get critical, you know, editorials, you get critical letters, you know, to the editor, all this other stuff, it starts to combine in the, in the minds of the ownership that the community and the media has kind of turned on us. And certainly there may have been a level of truth to that. You pair that up then with declining attendance and you start to think, well, maybe, maybe Milwaukee isn't the best place for us. And certainly I think Lou Perini up until the time he sold the team, um, he feared what happened after 48. Remember the 48, the Braves go to the world series and then the population or the, excuse me, their attendance rather plummets in the aftermath. I think he feared the same thing happened in Milwaukee. So when he agreed to sell the team in 62 to the new investors out of Chicago, I think in his mind, he felt he had solved the problem. 
Um, you know, they would get more close to local ownership. Um, there were some guys from Wisconsin that were part of the new ownership group. Um, it would give them a local face that they could associate with the team and maybe that's what they needed. So he, in essence, after taking his company public, he wrote off the biggest loss they had that year in 62. And that was the Braves sold the team, uh, washes his hands of it. New ownership comes in and here's where one of the other big problems comes in. I believe that the new ownership group overpaid for the team. I think they were desperate to be baseball owners. People forget there's not a lot of baseball teams. Your chance of being a baseball owner is much more difficult than being a U.S. Senator. So when you have a chance to buy into a team, you're going to do whatever it takes to get that team and do whatever it takes to hold on to it. And they bought the team mostly on credit. They financed it. They had balloon payments coming down the road. And the only way they could make their payments down the road was if they averaged between 1 million to about 1.5. So in essence, what they have to have happen is the interest in the team go back to where it was in the early 1950s. And that's just not going to happen in the 1960s anywhere in America. Um, but particularly in Wisconsin with the Packers taking off. And again, it's not like fans abandoned the team. It's just, they weren't coming out in the, the over, height numbers they had in the early 50s, that false high that I talked about earlier. All right. As objectively as possible, can you describe uh, your opinion of the sale uh, of the team by Perini to uh, the Chicago-based group led by uh, Bill Bartholomew in 62? Do you think Perini sold with the foreknowledge that Bartholomew and team would essentially be so quick to start looking around to find another market and or another home uh, and or, you know, maybe more cynically not uh, stick around in Milwaukee? Or do you think Perini believed that Bartholomew and, and, and team were very much going to do their best to kind of take Milwaukee back to where it was in the beginning? Well, you know, I, I think that it, it's a multi-level question. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it has been rumored, and there's some evidence to the case that Perini was actually uh, one of the first to reach out to Atlanta about the possibility of moving his team there. And again, I talk about a lot of this baseball fluctuation in my book and the rumors that any team was going to be moving. I mean, every team in the 1950s was rumored to be moving somewhere. You know, the Yankees are going to go to Sacramento and you know, the Dodgers, of course, are going to go to L.A. And all every team was rumored to be moving. And, you know, there was rumors already when the attendance was taken off in Milwaukee that the Braves are going to leave and go somewhere else, you know, Montreal or something like that. And it was just a lot of it was ridiculous. You have to kind of filter through that. You know, so I think Perini sold before he had to move the team. Um, and this is where I actually had a chance to interview Bill Bartholomew. And every time I've had a chance to say this, I, I really try to reflect, I, I believe, what our conversation was, what I understand his position to be. I don't believe they initially bought the team to move it. I believe they bought it with the intention that they could keep the team here. I asked him point blank, did you buy the team to move it? His answer was no. Now, again, he could just be saying that, I don't know. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I believe for the first six months, they attempted to do everything they could. They sold stock in the team. They put Vince Lombardi on the board of directors. There's all this stuff that they did to try and bring in local investors to help alleviate the debt load they were carrying, to get people to get their kids out to the ballpark. There's a lot of things that they did, but it didn't work. The attendance fell off. In fact, 1963 was the worst year of attendance in Milwaukee outside of the lame duck year of 65. 
So they did all of this stuff and it became very apparent that they were not even going to get close to drawing a million. And remember, they need to draw probably closer, you know, to 1.2 to 1.5 million to really, you know, break even with a little bit of a profit coming out of the year. And what do you do with your profits? That's where you, you're hiring scouts, you're, you're uh, paying for maintenance down at your minor league facilities. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you need to do with that money. And it became apparent they're not going to get it in Milwaukee. And that's when Atlanta came calling. And part of Atlanta's deal was um, Charlie O'Finley, who owned the Kansas City Athletics, had basically gone there at one point as well. And he had gone to a lot of different cities. You know, he goes to, um, you know, he said at Oakland one time, hey, we'll move out there. He, he said to Louisville, you know, he cut a deal actually with Louisville. Hey, you know, um, I'll move my team here. I'll, I'll come here for two years. If you don't make it here, I'll just go somewhere else. And his idea was, we can always make new fans. You know, it doesn't matter where we go, we'll always make new fans. But yeah, he had actually gone to Atlanta and kind of convinced them, look, if you build a stadium, I'll bring my team down here. So the city of Atlanta and Fulton County agreed to put up a stadium, like Milwaukee did. They didn't have a team yet, but they're going to put the stadium up. So they invest, they build the stadium. Well, when it came time to find a team to come, there was only two teams that had leases up at municipal stadiums. One was Milwaukee, the other was Cleveland. Now, again, part of the frugality of Milwaukee County was they didn't want to lock into a long-term stadium deal. So the last stadium deal they had cut was very acrimonious coming after the 1957 season, and I believe it was for a five-year window, and then they renewed it again in 62 for three more seasons. And, you know, the Braves wanted a 10-year deal where they could renew it every two years, where the Braves basically could opt out at any point. Milwaukee County didn't want to go with that but they could never get themselves to agree on a 10 or a 15 year deal. And had they done that, the Braves would still be in Milwaukee, but the County was always afraid they were going to lose out on revenue. If baseball becomes really popular and all this other stuff starts to happen, we're going to miss out on money. So they never wanted to really tie them up to a long-term deal. Well, that meant that when their stadium deal was up, the team would be eligible to move. So they'll agree in principle to kind of move the team down to Atlanta. Um, the ownership group believed that, um, a stadium lease was like a player contract. You can sign a player for, you know, uh, four years and you can cut them at any given point. Now, again, obviously with baseball today, you know, all these contracts are guaranteed and they just simply believed it kind of worked the same way. Hey, well, you know, we're going to break our lease. We'll pay you what we owe you, but we're going to move to the new city. Um, and this of course leads to a lawsuit, you know, between, uh, Milwaukee, uh, County, the state of Wisconsin and the, the, uh, the Atlanta Braves and major league baseball. At what point does the idea of relocation start to really go beyond just mere rumor? Have you been able to pinpoint kind of when the speculation, the rumor, the waft of an idea, uh, Atlanta or just generally starts to actually get some real credence in Milwaukee? Yeah, you know, I, I think the you know when it went into the sporting news in July of '63. That there was you know, discussion between Bartholomew and um, Atlanta, and Bartholomew and Atlanta admitted in the aftermath, yeah, we, you know, they did have discussions at that point. But again, it's all preliminary. Hey, would you be interested in moving your team here? You know, what do you have? We do know behind the scenes, eventually, before any deal was cut, um, the Braves organization did send people to Atlanta in particular Dick Cecil to make sure that the stadium was built to their specifications. So I know that at least from 63 on, they were looking to make that move. Now at the time they're looking to do this, you have to understand this as well. The Braves are paying more to play in Milwaukee County stadium 
than any other team in Major League Baseball is paying to play in their own facility. How's that happen? Because the county held the cards, and the county believed that the Braves are never going to find a better stadium than Milwaukee County Stadium. Therefore, the county always believed they had the leverage. By the time they realize that they are talking about going somewhere else, and they start to offer all these breaks, and you can determine your own concessions. And of course, there's the big debate over the beer sales, and you know we can talk about that. But you know, by the time the county realizes this, it's already too late. Um, and again, they just they simply didn't understand the business side of what Major League Baseball is. If you build it, they will come. If you don't build it, they will leave. It's extraordinary, though. And obviously, I wasn't around at the time, but it's extraordinary to see just how quickly the rise and the and the embrace and the major league status of Milwaukee, and not even three years later, you know, from winning a world championship, well, for three, four years later, right? It's almost a sale of the team, right? And some acrimony on contractual relationships between the, the stadium that houses them and the team, you think that that would be the the high watermark of the relationship, right? Uh, it's hard to hard to fathom how quickly it it breaks down into not only flirtation with another market, but essentially almost a, it if being an effet accompli come sixty three ish. Yeah, you know, and it, there's a lot of other things that are you know also going on behind the scenes. You know, the, the Braves have been pushing for a long time for a ban on uh, imported beer, uh, basically carrying beer into the the stadium. Um, Prior to um, the beer, and they always talk about the beer ban in Milwaukee, because Milwaukee was a brewing city, you had Pabst, you had Miller, you had Blatt's, you had Gettleman, you had all these different breweries, and, and workers oftentimes get free or very reduced price beer, so you could carry in whatever you wanted into the ballpark. Well, by the early 1960s, Milwaukee County Stadium was the only place in Major League Baseball where you could do that, so the fans around here, frankly, were spoiled. Find me any other place you could carry in beer. I mean, I have a story in the book of uh, when the Cardinals would come to town, some enterprising uh, gentleman went out and bought a bunch of Budweiser, filled up a garbage can with ice, put the Budweiser in, dragged it into the stadium, and was selling it cheaper than what you could buy a beer at the ballpark to all the Cardinals fans. I mean, this is what was happening. So the county and the team agreed to to ban um, carry-ins. Well, that hacked off a lot of people. Oh, they're just trying to screw over the little guy, you know, and so attendance went down. In part, because of that, there were some fan boycotts of the team because of it. Well, again, both the county and the team are pointing the finger at the other person, even though they both wanted the ban in place. What year was that? The ban went into effect, I think, 60, again, I'm off the top of my head right now. I think it was 62. And so by 63, they, they, they basically, they're going to rescind it and they allow carry-ins again. And when the team announced in October of 64 that they were going to leave, um, that's when the county voted. One of the last things they did in forcing the team to stay in Milwaukee at County Stadium was uh, they put the beer uh, ban back in place. And so they were trying to do whatever they could to screw over that Braves organization in that last year they were here. Well, it's also the beginning of this uh, this pouring rights uh, kind of thing, which is standard uh, procedure today, right? Which is arguably another revenue stream, right? Uh, in in today's modern. Uh, sort of stadium and uh, in-person experience, right? The idea of having the uh, exclusive license, if you will, to be the exclusive pourer, uh, and you can't bring in things from the outside. I mean, it's a classic, uh, it almost seems uh, uh, ironic that uh, y- you get the brewery heritage of the city, but you also, you wonder where the economics were uh, in the in that calculus. 
Oh, a- absolutely. You know, and, and again, the dynamic is a little bit different because it was County stadium. It was Milwaukee County stadium. It was a municipal ballpark. Every brewer in the city got a chance to sell their beer inside the ballpark. So even as a kid, when I went in there in the early 1970s, you know, you'd have a guy can't walk around carrying Blatt, somebody else carrying Paps and somebody else carrying Miller, you know, all the breweries were represented. There was somebody in there selling old style, you know, for a while too. Um, so, you know, th- this was happening and the Braves had no control over that. Um, part of the stadium deal they're going to get with Atlanta is they can pick and choose who they wanted for their concessions, what kind of beers they wanted, that type of thing. So they weren't leveraged by the stadium authority like they were in Milwaukee. All right. So let's, uh, as we kind of round third base here, give us a sense of sort of the, the denouement here, the uh, how, how the team kind of inelegantly not only uh, is found out to be leaving, uh, maybe announces it's leaving, and then it's uh, somewhat inelegant actual leaving in 64, 65-ish. Well, you know, the, the hardest part was this. Um, you know, there were there were a lot of diehard fans that were there and, and people that even if they weren't in the ballpark were listening on the radio and stuff. But things started to change, you know. Um, the great voice of the Braves, Earl Gillespie, retires. He goes into television. Um, they get a couple other guys to come up and start announcing the game. So there's that, that dynamics a little bit different. Of course, the ballpark experience is a little different. You don't have the raging fans out there like you did in the early 1950s. So, you know, new kids that were just coming of age in the early 60s, a lot of them fell in love with the team, but it wasn't the same dynamic that it had been 10 years earlier, you know, during these the peak years of attendance. And then when it's not, you know, when it's rumored the team is going to leave, there's a big push by the county, by the business leadership, by civic organizations, by the politicians. We're going to save the Braves. So they do everything they can in their power in 64 to get the attendance up over a million to show that Milwaukee is a major league city, that despite all this, despite the fact you might be leaving, hey, look, we're a good team. We're a good town. And what people forget is that at the time when people are looking at 62 and they're looking at this bad attendance they had, they outdrew the Chicago Cubs and they outdrew the Boston Red Sox that year. Yet everybody points out, oh, it's a disaster in Milwaukee. They were outdrawing. Cities that are called, you know, these classic baseball towns, Milwaukee was still better than that. So Milwaukee felt that, you know, if you look at it on average, you know, they, they drew on average throughout the entire 13 seasons they were there, you know, about 1.5 million. They were the number two drawing team in all of Major League Baseball between 1953 and 65. The problem is their attendance is less than half of what it had been before. So when they don't get over the million mark and when October comes, October 21st, 1964, at a board of directors meeting in Chicago, the new ownership group, which had moved the team's headquarters down to Chicago earlier that year, uh, made the decision to accept the terms of the agreement with Atlanta and signed a 25-year lease. They fired all the members of the Wisconsin, uh, from Wisconsin who were on the board of directors they never told Vince Lombardi. He just, he wasn't invited to come down to this. They never really informed him that he was in essence off the board of directors. And, you know, they agreed to move. Well, like I said, they, they hoped to be playing 1965 down in Atlanta. What Milwaukee has is one chip in their hand. They have a stadium lease that requires the Braves to play all their home games exclusively at Milwaukee County stadium. Now what the Braves are going to do is offer them $500,000 to walk out give $500,000. We're just simply going to walk out. Milwaukee County refused. 
They get halfway through the 65 season. Attendance is deplorable. They ask at the halfway mark, okay, we'll give you $50 or $500,000 now. Let us out of our lease now. We'll go to Atlanta, finish up the year. And the reason that's significant is that's more money than what the county had made the previous year off having the Braves there. But the fans really are the ones that have no voice. They, they see this coming. They see the team going. There's really nothing that they can do. Some fans chose to boycott. Some fans tried to go to as many games as they could to see baseball while they still could. And the great debate was between the civic community and the politicians, what is in the best interest of Milwaukee? Are you better off suing the team and forcing them to stay or letting them go knowing full well at some point baseball is going to go to expansion? If you've been a great baseball town up until this point, they have to consider you. So some in the private sector are simply saying, if the Braves want to go, let them go. We have nothing to prove by trying to draw fans out to a team that's going to leave. Let's put all our interest into getting expansion. Now, I can't say what was the best course of action. I do know this. The course of action Milwaukee County took cost them expansion. In 67, both the American League and the National League expanded and excluded Milwaukee. In fact, the American League didn't even allow Milwaukee to make a presentation. So here you have the number two drawing team in Major League Baseball for the time they're in Milwaukee, and they don't even get a seat at the table to give at least a presentation about why the American League should consider expanding to Milwaukee. So they hacked off by suing Major League Baseball and by going after the, um, the exemption clause. They angered a lot of people within baseball, but that's a political response. And that's what the county felt that was the only course of action they had. And I, you know, honestly, as I sit here now, it's 2019, um, you know, people ask me what would be the best course of action. I don't really have a good answer. There, there was no good answer. No matter what you do, it's going to be a disaster. But they, they ultimately, they lost. You know, the people in Milwaukee, um, the people in Wisconsin lost when that team left. And for a lot of them, they never came back. I mean, we're sitting here now in 2019. You know, the Brewers came within a game of winning the pennant last year, again, ironically, to the Dodgers. Uh, like the Braves did in, in, you know, 56. And there's still people that I know in my life that were around when the Braves, that were huge Braves fans that to this day are still not fans of baseball in Milwaukee because they're just afraid the team's going to leave again. So they never invested in the team that's here. Well, uh, maybe you can enlighten a little bit uh, uh, about Bud Selig's uh, role in all this, right? Because he was part of the Braves' ownership, right, on a minority status. And, and I think he was kind of one of the guys who kind of, tried to put as much of a, a break on the move as much as he could, and then obviously was instrumental in, what, not even five years later, getting finally, uh, if you will, yeah. a replacement team to come in, in in the form of the now Major League again, Brewers. Yeah, you know, Seelig's role was, was, you know, highlighted, you know, by the Braves organization when they were leaving. Um, they He was part of an organization that was designed to help keep the Braves here. Um, he was accused by the organization of trying to use the money to badmouth the Braves, to you know try and get another team here. Um, that really wasn't the case. The organization was called Teams Incorporated, and they actually did not have in their charter that they could buy a team. So they founded in '65 the Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club Incorporated. So the Milwaukee Brewers organization actually dates back to '65. It predates the team, um, which doesn't come until 1970. So Selig is behind the scenes trying desperately to get the team to sell. What they offer the Braves organization is this. We'll pay off what you paid, and in essence, what you owe. 
you can walk away scot-free. Just wash your hands of debt load, sell the team to us. We're going to keep it in Milwaukee. You can go away, no problem. The owners didn't want to do it because they desperately wanted to be baseball owners. So Seelig's group behind the scenes tries to do this repeatedly. The ownership group says no. Now, what they'll say to this day, and Bartholomew said, you know, even in my interview, there was no credible offer. Well, I look at it this way. If you have an asset that you have no intention of selling and somebody says, I'll buy that from you, is that a legitimate offer? Depends upon if you're considering selling it or not. So I don't think that in Bartholomew's mind, any offer other than something that was, you know, three times what the team was worth, they would have considered selling the organization. So therefore, there was no legitimate offer in his mind to buy the team. So Selig sits behind the scene after the team leaves and works to keep Major League Baseball alive in Milwaukee. So the Milwaukee Brewers Baseball Club eventually sponsors games from the Chicago White Sox um, to come up and play in County Stadium. So they did a series of exhibitions in 67. They played a slate of games in 68. And then by 69, they hosted every team in the American League at least one game at County Stadium including, ironically, the Seattle Pilots, who played one of their games in Milwaukee County Stadium as a visiting team. So when you go into spring training in 1970, the Seattle franchise is um, in bankruptcy. Um, They got an expansion team to go into Seattle. They were playing in a ballpark that was a minor league park, smaller than County Stadium, worse than that. And ultimately, they, they failed miserably in Seattle. So eerily similar to what happens with the Braves, in spring training, as the trucks are going back from spring training, they, they stop as they're waiting to message, are we driving back to Seattle or are we going to Milwaukee? And ultimately, um, Seelig's group buys the pilots out of bankruptcy court. The trucks go to Milwaukee. They take the pilots off the front of the uniforms. They sold block letter brewers on the front, and they adopt the colors blue and gold, which the brewers still use to this day. Of course, a variation of it in the navy blue they have now, but in their traditional colors, those were actually the colors of the Seattle pilots. And so that kind of, you know, brings it back full circle. The County had learned their lesson. They locked the brewers into a 25 year lease immediately. Although ironically, the brewers never got a dime of parking lot revenue either, but at least there was a long-term lease and there was major league baseball back in Milwaukee. And, and in 1970, what was the feeling of the Miami populace? I mean, you're mentioning some still of the holdouts that, you know, kind of got burned the first time and didn't want to get burned a second time. Was there as much of an embrace for the Brewers when they came as the uh, former pilots? And, and, you know, it was only five years removed from the Braves leaving town in the first place. Yeah, it was too soon. And they they didn't draw even um, uh, over a million that first year. And it took them a little bit. What they did, however, was they were at, they actually did better. If you, if you calculate it out over 13 years, and it's a great comparison. And I have a chart actually in the book where I compare every team that moved for the first 13 season, because it gives you a comparison of Milwaukee. And then I also break down um, the difference between, you know, the Boston Braves to Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Braves to Atlanta and the Seattle pilots to Milwaukee. And the Milwaukee fans did far better in both cases than the Atlanta fans did. In fact, 10 years out after the Braves moved to Atlanta, they drew less than the lame duck year of 1965 Milwaukee, when everybody in Milwaukee knew the team was leaving. So, you know, everybody's pointing at this. And in fact, the, in the first 20 years that the Milwaukee Brewers existed, they outdrew the Atlanta Braves 18 of those 20 years. But the argument was, look, 
the Braves could play in front of an empty stadium and still make more revenue than the Brewers because they got a seven-state television network. They had a multi-state radio network. They had Coca-Cola based right in Atlanta. They're, they're pumping in money that just simply the local community in Wisconsin could not match. And so the, the Braves make more money playing in an empty stadium than the Brewers did playing in a full stadium. So, you know, it's not necessarily apples to apples, but I tried to dispel this idea that Milwaukee was a bad baseball town because it clearly wasn't. It clearly wasn't. Yeah, I mean, look, I do sense this because and of all the teams, you know, we've been we've doing this for two and a half years and various teams and leagues and stuff. And to me, it almost feels a little like an, a bit of an anomaly, right? Because you're talking about a, a relatively short period of time where this, this team was in Milwaukee. And uh, you could make the argument that uh, the success of the team, both you mentioned it in terms of on the field, never having had a losing season and 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 drawing exceedingly well, especially in those first, say, six to eight years. It almost feels to me like it was uh, a strong concentration of success that didn't last all that long and, and strangely left maybe sooner against, take the Senators in Washington. I mean, there are a lot of teams that just go on for decades, right, in averageness. Yeah, you know, um, it was kind of, and I hate to use the, the, the words, you know, perfect storm, but, you know, it kind of was. You know, you had, I'll, I'll argue, some level of mismanagement by the county. You had a Braves organization that, you know, qualitatively for, for the players was in decline. Um, you had soaring costs of baseball at a time baseball interest is going down. You have the rise of the Packers in the state of Wisconsin. So you have all of these dynamics starting to come together at a time when you, what we simply needed was attendance. Attendance saves the team. Then you throw in, you know, the in 61, the twins come into Minnesota. Um, there's all this other stuff that goes on. And 10 years earlier, had the team moved 10 years earlier, they're probably still here. Had the team come 10 years later, they're probably still here. It's that one window in time where everything seemed to go against the Braves being in Wisconsin. And it is what it is. You know, hey, even if their stadium lease was two years longer, say their stadium lease takes them to 67, it would probably be the Atlanta Indians because it came down to Cleveland and, and, and Milwaukee and the Braves ownership group is the one that cuts the deal. So, you know, it's, it's kind of that perfect storm of just everything going wrong for the Braves being here in Milwaukee. And you can't point your finger at just one thing because it's a combination of all these things. And all the things that happen, for the most part, are kind of logical to the era that they're in. All right, last question, then I'll let you promote. In your estimation, given your research, uh, your knowledge of Wisconsin, you're, you're having spent some time there of significance, where would you sort of put the baseball legacy of Milwaukee? Would you think it resides... With the Braves in Atlanta now, do you think the the Brewers have effectively uh, inherited it, or do you think the Milwaukee Braves was sort of a container in time that really hasn't gone anywhere? It just sort of sits there in a in a glass box somewhere in people's memories. I, I think it's it's the latter. I, I think it just sits there. I mean, you know, the the Brewers have done some to embrace it. I mean, they've actually done when they first went in the National League. Um, they would do things when the Braves came to town to kind of remind people of when the Braves used to be here. And then when they moved into Miller Park, they kind of transitioned away from that. But, you know, if you watch any number of Brewers baseball games at Miller Park, you will find people wearing Braves jerseys or Braves ball caps. Um, when the Milwaukee, or excuse me, when the Atlanta Braves come to town, you will see Milwaukee fans wearing Brewers jerseys and Milwaukee Braves caps. 
So there's still kind of that chip on the shoulder in the community that the team left. But I, you know, and I kind of talk about in the book this way, you know, maybe the one benefit to them leaving is when you close your eyes, you can imagine them still in those beautiful white uniforms with the tomahawk across the top, you know, the Navy caps and the, and the red bills and that gorgeous white M on the front. And it really summed up all that was good with baseball in Milwaukee. You didn't have to see the ugly polyester pullover uniforms that they wore in the seventies. You have to see the pinstripe uniforms they tried in 69. You know, you just, there's that box that they reside in, in our memories where they'll always be Warren Spahn will always be the 20 game winner and Henry Aaron will always be the kid. And uh, you know, that, that, that came in out of nowhere and just lit the world on fire. Eddie Matthews will always be that outstanding third baseman. And maybe that's the best place for him. You think any of it's wrapped up in this just general nostalgia for the 1950s? Oh, I think so. I think there's a part of that. Um, Certainly among, among the older generation that still remember them. Um, and again, you know, they transitioned into the 1960s, but, you know, by the 1960s, you get into the Vietnam War and the civil rights protest. And, you know, there's a race riot in Milwaukee in 67. So there's a lot of things, you know, and it's easy to wax nostalgic about, you know, when everybody was just simply excited about baseball. So that might have part of it, too. All right. So let's talk about the book. It came out last year. I think it did. Give our audience the uh, the title and a little bit of uh, the background of it. Uh, are you promoting it more? Are there any things that come out of it? Maybe that you think you've got uh, in you as well, other projects or anything in film or other documentary or whatever. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping at some point, you know, to maybe talk to a couple filmmakers about it. Cause I think, I think there's a story here to be told, you know, of course the title of the book is home of the Braves, um, the battle for baseball in Milwaukee. And, you know, the natural follow-up is to cover kind of the story of what happens from the federal court case um, up until the, the time the brewers actually come. So I'm doing some research in there and, de- and deciding whether or not there's enough of a story there to tell. And I, and I think there might be, I don't know. Um, but you know, I, what I would like to do ultimately with the book is this to have people read it. And if, you know, they have a chance to talk to me, the first question I will always ask you is this, who's the bad guy in the story. And the, the reason I ask that question is because people blame everybody. And it's funny because people, somebody like, Oh, I was Milwaukee County board. Something, Oh, I was the fan stopped coming. Some will say, well, you know, it's still, I think the owners overall, but I get a different story from everybody. And to me, that's what a, what a historian should do. That's what I'm trained as. You know, we should not be writing a narrative history. We should be writing a history that tells a story that's open to interpretation, that's based on the facts, the evidence of the case, and let the people themselves make the decision, you know, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And ultimately, in this case, frankly, there's no good guys in the story. Look, I, I think all of this is very interesting. And, I, you know, I, I consider myself a, a middling baseball fan, and but, but certainly one through this as well as in previous my previous lives, just generally interested in, in history and the, and the confluence of that in sports. And, I, you know, from the outsider's perspective, not having grown up here or you know, not, not around during the time of the Milwaukee Braves, but certainly aware of it, certainly through conversations like this, which I thank you for. You look at, say, things like uh, an eBay or or the uh, the nostalgia crowd or, or, you know, items for sale and stuff. And it, it is it is kind of amazing how much Milwaukee Braves stuff is either available or desired or, frankly, just alluring to look at. Uh, and I don't know what it is. There's just something that there's an aura around 
this team and this period of time, and I think even the memorabilia that came out of it. Well, I think it was a combination of the players, the success of the team. Again, you're looking at a couple, you know, phenomenal Hall of Fairs, and the all-time winningest left-handed pitcher of all time, Warren Spahn, the home run king, Henry Aaron, you know, gets his start in Milwaukee. In fact, they actually played more seasons in Milwaukee than they ever did down in Atlanta. I think it's a travesty. They got an A on his cap down there rather than an M, but that's my own personal feelings. Again, you got Eddie Matthews, you got Joe Adcock, you got Joe Torrey, you got Bob Euchre playing for the team, you know, Del Crandall I talked about before, Red Shandings comes over for the Cardinals, you know, I mean, there's all these great players, Bobby Thompson, you know, spent some time in Milwaukee, you know, it was just, it was a great time, they were embraced by the community, there's that level of nostalgia, because things in the 50s were still on the surface, they seemed good in comparison to what, you know, the civil unrest we had in the 1960s and, you know, the, the growing conflict in Vietnam and the political divide that, that really kind of encompassed the nation during those years, you know, um, by that point, the Braves were gone, you know, and there's that, that nostalgia for when things were good, when Milwaukee may have been Bush league, but Bushville won, they won it all in 57. And, and I think that's kind of a great encapsulating point of the story. Well, there you have it, friends, our, our second exploration deep dive into uh, the Milwaukee Braves uh, of the uh, 1950s and early 1960s. Patrick Steele, thank you so much for being part of our little journey into uh, sports uh, history and pop culture. The book uh, that Patrick wrote is, again, called Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee. It is published by the University of Wisconsin Press. It came out in March of 2018. It is available, of course, wherever good books are found. Uh, but uh, if you'd like to give us a little love uh, financially as we try to keep our lights on, by all means, why don't you search up this episode on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and you'll find a link conveniently to this book and you can buy it through Amazon uh, via that link. Give us a couple of shekels of referential love and Patrick, of course, will enjoy the fact that yet another book has been sold to uh, keep his... Uh, lights on as well, although I'm sure he's doing just fine as a professor up in Wisconsin. But, uh, you know, every book sale certainly doesn't uh, hurt. And uh, God forbid uh, that uh, he makes a few more shekels on his writings as well. And again, our thanks to Patrick and of course, our thanks to you, our thanks to uh, our friends at Podfly Productions. While we're thanking people, Jerry Payne in particular, the good doctor uh, who puts all of our pieces together each and every week. Uh, we don't know why he does. Well, he's got some financial incentive to do so, let's be honest. But, you know, if uh, he could be doing other things, I'm sure he would be. But despite all that, we thank him profusely for helping us uh, putting our uh, our show together. And you can find out more about Podfly and their services at podfly.net. And again, don't forget, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's the place to go for all of our goodness and and updates and stuff. You find all of our episodes there. Uh, you'll find our social feeds on Twitter. We'll find you'll find us at uh, Good Seat Still. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seat Still Available. You will find a link to our Facebook page devoted to us. All of that stuff. You can sign up for our newsletter each and every week. We try to tip you off on what uh, what the episode's going to be in the coming days. And of course, you can send us email either directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com or just through the link. That's on said website. All right. I'm uh, done for this week. And uh, we leave you with a little ditty from 1966, I believe it is. Let's double check that. Yes. And it is by the great Frankie Yankovic. 
There's debate as to whether he's related to Weird Al. It is uh, the story of the Milwaukee Braves leaving Milwaukee. It's called There's No Joy Left. And we wish you a, a sad but fond adieu, courtesy of Frankie Yankovic. And until next week, we'll see you. Bye-bye. Oh, there's no joy left now in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee. Oh, there's no joy left now in Milwaukee. You Braves have scalped this town. In 1954, when you first came to town, you won Milwaukee's heart. We paraded you around. In 1957, the series you did win, and the town was in a spin. Oh, oh, there's no joy left now in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee. Oh, there's no joy left now in Milwaukee. You Braves have scalped this town. Our romance didn't last, cause we found out one day you wanted to get out. You started into straight. Good to you, you needed us no more, and we're knocking at a Georgia Peach's door. Oh, oh, there's no more baseball in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee. Oh, there's no more baseball in Milwaukee. You Braves have scalped this town. We wrote the record book, came out each day to cheer. We did so much for you, now we're crying in our beer. Atlanta, hear me now, cause what I say is true. Someday someone will steal them from you. Oh, oh, there's no more baseball in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee. Oh, there's no more baseball in Milwaukee. You Braves have scalped this Thank <laughs> you.